<laughs> Thank you very much. Where we land this boy, you are so high energy. By the time you're done, I'm just exhausted. <laughs> what an exciting experience it is for me to be in Cincinnati. And um, I, uh, I was here once again many years ago. Yeah, many years ago. And uh, it's, it's so exciting to be here. And I, I, uh, the lenders took me out for a supper with a, to one of the many exciting uh, Jewish eateries. And uh, a few people from Cincinnati, and I, and I said, why do people live in Cincinnati? You know, exactly. <laughs> this is a typical New Yorker speaking, you know what I mean? We're out of town, it's called New Jersey, you know? And uh, like Cincinnati, you know, it's like, you know, so it's strategically located near Kentucky. Okay, I appreciate that. I got to land in Kentucky, you know? And, and so uh, what I found out is, I didn't know this, is that for many years it was considered the poor capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was it called? Porkopolis. Porkopolis. Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis. So I can't tell you how excited I am to be. Just knowing that idea more than anything, it really helped me focus. And that's why, for me, I see a whole different perspective when you come to Israel. You know, you come to Israel, and uh, and groups come to Israel, and just everything is is. Uh, you know, it's, it's all in Hebrew, it's, uh, has a real strong Jewish feel to it and everything. Very interesting, you know, contrast. The people come to Israel, and you get to meet them on, on slightly different terms that you do when you come there. So uh, I had a chance to meet the uh, Cincinnati group when it came in, and, um, and this was... Uh, made possible by the fact that Relatus was calling my house two, three, four times a day. You know what I mean? Because I don't know if you have a chance to get to know him a little bit, but he's so subtle. <laughs> I think it's one of his strongest qualities. And, uh, you know, and so after a while we had to change our number, but it didn't happen. He, he suddenly started jumping out of dark alleys and stuff. and said, you're coming to speak to the group. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, so we, um, I had a chance to speak to them, and I was... I spoke on a topic uh, that, uh, you know, was a fundamental topic, and that's what I really gave the first talk. And I guess maybe in order to give this talk, I, I'll just sum up what we did there for an hour, and I can only sum it up, obviously. And uh, the question that we asked was, why should a person be a Jew? That was the question. You know, and I have to tell you that most people are answering this question among the Jewish people today by saying, I have no good idea why, and therefore the fastest growing group among the Jewish people are people dropping out. That's the reality. And so the question, you know, like I always said, you know, when I was growing up, if I asked this, I'm from a different generation for, from many people here, you know, if I asked my parents, why do I have to be a Jew? She would say, my mother, my mother would say, shut up, stupid. <laughs> and, and that worked for us, you know what I mean? And we didn't really take it much further, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if it got really bad, my father would say, you want to be in the will, you know? I'd say, I don't know, how much are we talking about, you know? <laughs> no, that's worth it, okay. <laughs> I'll stick around. Anyway, but that was it. But, uh, but today... Now, all those assumptions are gone. The, 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 the just be Jewish because, you know, the joy of Jewish culture, you know? Um, it's amazing that we are raising millions of dollars to get Jews to enjoy Jewish culture. Why? Because nobody wants to do it. You don't find Italians raising millions of dollars to get people to eat lasagna. <laughs> like lasagna, you know what I'm saying? But you have to pay people to eat your filter fish. They're going to ask, what is that goo in the jar exactly? <laughs> we 
to focus on the goo in the jar. And that's about it, you know what I mean? Um, you know, if I pay you enough money, would you mind if I crank up some klezmer? We'll dance a horror and eat some gefilte fish, you know? But Italians don't have that problem, you know what I mean? You know, there's a, there's a strong sense of it. So, so... Jewish culture is not going to keep people here, you know? We've been around for so long, is one of my favorite uh, things. As if there's some ancient people contest that we entered years ago. <laughs> my attitude is we must have won by now, so just give us the plaque and let's move on, you know what I mean? Like, you know? And uh, this one I've, I've heard from major Jewish organizations, we're shocked, you know, we have to keep the Jewish people alive because six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Yeah. And if you don't keep the Jewish people alive, there won't be anybody left to kill the next time. <laughs> that to me is like the best uh, argument I've ever heard to assimilate. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because so many people get killed. You know, look at the terrible anti-Semitism. Isn't it horrible? Yeah. So that's why you have to be Jewish, so that they can be killed and beaten and starved and oppressed, you know. And I don't know, I always miss the logic in that one. I don't know why, you know. I've heard this from people. I met a guy, you know, he was... He was so probably my father's age, you know, and he says, Oh, when I was growing up, you know, I was a Jew. I'd go to, I'd go to school and the non-Jewish kids used to beat me. They beat me because I was a Jew. I'm a proud Jew. He says, well, what are you proud of? They beat me. <laughs> what, are you so good a masochist? You'll come right, I'll stop beating you, you know what I mean? Like, I got beaten for, you know what I mean? You know? Shut. I always... Think of the words of General George Patton who said, we don't need anyone to die for our country. You don't win wars by dying for your country. You win wars by making the other guy die for his country. Yeah? <laughs> and that's my attitude. I made so many people are ready to die for their Jewish beliefs. They won't live for it, but they're ready to die for it, you know? So, so the question comes out that if a kid turns around and says, why should I do this? Why should we do this? I know the idea of you know, being beaten and killed is interesting, but you know, there's got to be something more, I think, to motivate people. And what we discuss then, and like I said, I don't have enough time to develop the whole thing now. I'm saying it, uh, you know, really in an in, in encapsulated form, is uh, what the Jewish belief has always been. And this is always, of all the traditional sources, you can find this. And we quoted the Masilas Yisharim, it says, the reason we were created is, to get pleasure from God and enjoy the Divine Spirit, because that's the greatest pleasure and the light that there is. Meaning, and I must tell you, I did not learn this in my Jewish education, God created us for one reason, not to serve Him. You don't have to serve God. He's infinite. He's very secure. He wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, sees nothing. He's infinite. He's fine. Don't worry about him. You know what I mean? People feel like I have to pray to God to cheer him up. You know what I mean? Okay, big guy, feeling better, you know? Don't want you to get depressed and bring a flood or anything, you know what I mean? God is very secure. Don't worry about him. He's fine. You understand? He created the world for us to have the greatest possible time. And the greatest possible time is going to be an infinite pleasure that comes from being close to God. That's it. I have to tell you, in my Jewish education, we stayed away from God. God was the big frowning face of the sky waiting to come and get you and burn you in hell. You know what I mean? That was already a more advanced uh, idea. Most people didn't even know who he was. But uh, <laughs> you're a little more advanced, that was it. Somebody once said to me, I picture God standing there with a big lightning bolt. 
I said, that's Zeus. <laughs> I said, you're not even into monotheism yet. You know? You're up on Mount Olympus. Come on down. You know what I mean? You know? There's this picture of God, you know, this, 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 the God's coming to get me. God's coming to get me, you know. Uh, you know, he's going to burn me. Huh? So basically, we stay out of his way. Right? <clears throat> Wonderful theological work, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know what I mean? When God appears to them, and they all turn away, you know. And he says, what are you doing? Averting your eyes. Well, don't. Every time I talk to someone, it's, I'm not worthy, and forgive me this. Look at me when I talk to you. <laughs> Such a beautiful theological insight, which I think is important, you know? But there's this idea that instead, you know, I don't, you know, there's, there was once these billboards across America that somebody took out. There were white billboards with black writing signed God. I don't think God actually took them out, but you know, I can't prove them one way or the other, but you know. But they were all kinds of different things. Which part of thou shalt not don't you understand? God. You know what I mean? All these different kind of things. And there was one billboard there that made such an impression on me. It said, but I believe in you, dot, 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 God. You know, and it's interesting. People spend so much time worrying about whether we believe in God, but God believes in us. God created the world for us because he loves us and he wants to be close to us. And by getting close to God, you get this unbelievable spiritual pleasure. I, uh, I, I was on a plane sitting next to a middle-aged Israeli man who was on his way to join his wife in India. Who were, they were, two of them were studying in an ashram, Buddhism and meditation. I said, really, why? You know, he's a successful businessman, you know. And he says, oh, I love spirituality, I love meditation, it's such a wonderful feeling, you know. I said, you ever consider Judaism? What does Judaism got to do with spirituality? Not his fault, he never learns about it. You know, who ever thought that there was, there was this, that's the whole goal to it. The Dalai Lama, who we may be familiar with. The Dalai Lama, uh, there was this Jewish fellow who was doing a documentary on the Dalai Lama. And if you're, evidently, if you're close to the Dalai Lama, so he gives you a special mantra to be able to meditate on. Be able to meditate on. You know, Om, Om. <laughs> to, you know, most Jews don't really need one. They already have one. Mantra. The Dalai Lama won't give him a mantra. And finally, it's the last day of filming, and he says to him, Dalai, hello, Dalai. Why won't you give me a mantra? Everybody, you know, close you, give a mantra. I made this film about you. Everybody, give me a mantra. He says, you're Jewish, aren't you? He says, yeah. He says, you already have a mantra. He says, I never learned any mantra. He says, I bet you learned it when you were a child. He says, what's my mantra? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That's your mantra. But no one ever told him it was a mantra. Right? Something you have to do in, you know, school, where you learn it. You know, prayers set to some of the most annoying tunes that has ever been. <laughs> <laughs> such a high level of assimilation. <laughs> <laughs> the annoying tunes just annoy people. 
I love that. I love the part where none of the words actually fit in. <laughs> like Diana. Don't you love Diana? Diana's my favorite part of the face. I say it because none of the words actually fit this in. <laughs> Poor planning is what I call that. But, uh, but in any event, therefore, all of Judaism is about getting this unbelievable spiritual pleasure, getting close to God, getting this powerful, powerful spiritual pleasure. And so, after we finished over an hour developing this idea, and like I say, I'm giving it to you in capsule form, right? Uh, we, we developed it much more. So, people asked me at the end of the talk, that's beautiful, Rabbi, but how do you do it? How do you do it? And I say, well, we're out of time. That's another whole talk. <laughs> I said, you'll have to, you'll have to fly me out to Cincinnati if you want to hear the second talk. And they did. <laughs> Trust me, I never expected this. I was kidding, you know. So this is in fact part two. Those of you who are on the trip and you heard the first part, which is why be Jewish. This is actually the second part of it, right? And um, it, it got this really nifty title now called Why There Are No Cheeseburgers in Heaven Paradise which evidently is some Cincinnati reference if I'm not mistaken Jimmy Buffett Cheeseburgers We've gone from Porkopolis to Cheeseburgers and uh, etc., which is another thing that puts Cincinnati on the map. Very exciting. But um, <laughs> but uh, the uh, I had a much more mundane title than this, which is called Why Do Mitzvahs? And um, and maybe I'll introduce it in the following way, and and that is I talked about my fundamental concepts of why be Jewish and explaining all those things, and when I was done. I, somebody said to me, you know, Rabbi, that sounds beautiful. And I would not mind becoming an observant Jew. As long as I didn't have to keep all these laws. <laughs> but if I didn't have to keep all the laws, I have no problem being a religious Jew. I agree. There really wouldn't be much left to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just sit and think about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow, I love being in my heart. <laughs> I'm very religious in my heart. Once you move out of there, especially if you move towards the stomach, <laughs> much, much more secular. But uh, the heart, the heart keeps pumping, boy, and that's that's little really Jewish. You move up the throat a little bit, it gets a little stuck. But you know, in between, you know, chest cavity is definitely Jewish. You know what I mean? So, uh, so I I want to uh, take a uh, a moment to focus on this idea. The word mitzvah. What does the word mitzvah mean? This is the group participation part of the <laughs> Mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? Commandment. Commandment. The truth is, many people think it means good deed. Right? Do a mitzvah, help your grandmother with the packages. You know what I mean? Do a mitzvah, I did a mitzvah. You know? I'm a boy scout, I did a mitzvah. Yeah? It sounds something along those lines. The truth of the matter is that mitzvah comes from the Hebrew word sav, which means command. Commandment. Now, I had these two students over my house from a reform high school in, uh, in um, Israel. And um, they told me something they heard from one of their rabbis, which I read from a different, an article from a different reform rabbi in the Jewish Week in New York. And someone told me, when I said it over once, that they also saw it on the reform website. 
So I don't know how much you talk about reform, you know, theology, because it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, room for uh, personal expression. But as much as you could, I mean, this idea has already been, you know, in three different reform sources. We don't look at them as the Ten Commandments. We look at them as the Ten Suggestions. Right? Maybe don't steal. <laughs> Try not to kill. <laughs> Maybe you can stay away from my wife. <laughs> Suggestions, ideas for living. Now, I would like to do something this evening that I don't usually get an opportunity to do when I'm teaching in Israel or Samaria. And that is to defend the reform position. Right? I'm here in Cincinnati, which is uh, the, the, capital the, of the capital of reform. Right? Reverend Lane has pointed out to me maybe that in the poor capital, the two somehow corresponded because they did away with the Congress laws. I have no idea. Be that as it may, <laughs> we went right from pork into cheeseburger. Anyway, but uh, be that as it may, I want to defend the full reform position because it makes a lot of sense. And I'll explain to you why. Right? Mitzvah means commandment, and they change it to suggestion. Right? Okay. I was in 8th grade in a Jewish school in Long Island called the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County. And we were learning a Gemara, Tractate Kedushin. <coughs> Gemara Kedushin. I don't understand. This is, this is one of the things that really annoys me. Is there anybody who doesn't know what a Gemara is, who knows what a tractate is? <laughs> it's, like, it's like every now and then they translate these words, phylacteries. Yeah. You know? So I'm going to put in my filling. What's that? Phylacteries. Oh, what is this? <laughs> I don't know what phylacteries I don't know what filling are, but phylacteries! Why did you say so? You know? But if they only said it in Greek or Latin, it would be so much easier. I didn't understand it simply. You know what I mean? You know, those of you who start off to learn Gemara, you'll see that, you know, now they have the art school Gemaras, which are very user-friendly. I grew up with the Sansino translation. It was totally not user-friendly. Half the words were in Latin, half the words were in Greek. You know, it was easier to learn Aramaic than to have to learn all these other ancient languages, you know, that the Talmud was translated into. But, you know, when, um, when you talk about... Uh, uh, a Gemara, right? A Gemara. Just, if you don't know that word, you won't know tractate either. That's my friend. Anyway, we're learning Gemara Kedushin, and, uh, and we were asked the following question. Before we looked inside of the Gemara, we were asked the following question. Who gets more reward for doing a mitzvah? Meaning, right? You, um, you know, uh, decide you're keeping kosher. Right? Like human kosher. In the university, has a kosher cafeteria, and you're waiting online, and you're seeing in front of your mind is Mary O'Brien, this nice Catholic girl from your class. And you say, Mary, what are you doing here? She says, what do you mean? I always eat kosher. She says, why? Well, I think it's, it's healthy. I think it's good. I, 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 it's it's uh, you know, uh, um, um, uh, more sanitary. Uh, only a non-Jew would make that observation. <laughs> You've never been in a real kosher restaurant. <laughs> a real one. You know, the ones that I grew up with, you know? You know, a uh, linoleum table, you know, and, and a waiter with attitude comes by with a dirty rag, you know, like, you know wipes it down and puts a paper napkin that sticks to it, you know, puts out some fence cellboards. What do you want? Well, I'll have, we don't have any. It's hard to find them today. Today they're much classier. But when I was growing up, you know, when the only kosher wine was Manischewitz Extra Heavy Malaga, you know what I mean? Spoon it into the cup, take one sip, an instant headache, you know what I mean? You know? No Baron hurts or this kind of stuff when I was growing up, you know, that was it. And, um, you know, uh, you know, so, uh, 
I, we, we were in the 80s. I remember the last time I was in one of those was in Brooklyn in the 80s with my wife, you know. I've been in Israel 20 years now, you know. So at the end of the meal, my wife says, uh, can we get some herbal tea? Yeah, sure. Herb, get these people some tea. <laughs> I just remember that, you know. It sort of summed up the whole experience, you know what I mean? You know, you know your fingers in my soup? It's okay, it's not hot, you know. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, the old, the old uh, Jewish way there, you know. But anyway... Um, you know, so Mary O'Reilly's waiting in line in the cafeteria, and she says, hey, I always keep kosher, you know? And your whole life, you keep kosher. Mary O'Reilly keeps kosher. You get up to the next world, right? They open up the books. They say, oh, you both kept kosher. Who will get more reward for it? You or Mary O'Reilly? So how many people think the Jew would get more reward? How many think the non-Jew would get more reward? How many say they get the same reward? How many are not native English speakers? I can speak English with my hands behind my back, but Hebrew you need both hands. If you ever go to Israel, I have to teach you, if you ever go to Israel and you see someone do this, it means something completely different than it does in America. The fellow I know was an Israeli, he came and he was driving in a nice Italian neighborhood Bensonhurst in New York. And this guy behind him is beeping, but there's something in front of him, so he can't go. So he puts his hand out the window and goes like this, you know? The guy came out and pulled out a gun, put it out his hand. And he's like, I'm from Israel, it means something completely different. I wasn't saying anything about you, please, please. <laughs> so it's a good expression. But anyway, that's the question. Who gets more reward, the Jew or the not Jew? So we, we can make an argument both ways, being Jews, right? Um, three ways if you want. Yeah? And then, as you could say, uh, like I said when I heard the question the first time, namely that the non-Jew gets more reward for doing it because the non-Jew is not commanded. Hence, it's extra credit. Everyone knows you get paid extra for extra credit. I didn't have to do it. Gosh, you know, you have to do it. I didn't have to do it, so it should be worth more. And that's what I said, which was, of course, wrong. Gemara <laughs> says that the Jew gets more reward because it is always greater to do something when you're commanded than when you're not commanded. Right? Why? Because when you're commanded to do something, there is a psychological um, block that you have to now overcome. Right? We all know this. Yeah? Those of you who are of the university age or, you know, close enough to it that you can remember it, you know. So you know that you are, you know, you wake up in the morning and your room is a wreck by even your low standards. You know? <laughs> and you decide you're going to clean it up. That's it. All clothing that stands on its own is going in the laundry. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I'm going to bring in a lawnmower and see what I can do with the carpet. You know what I mean? you know, I'm determined to straighten up my room. It happens. You get this moment of inspiration. Five minutes later, your mother walks in the room and says, This is a pigsty, clean it up. 
Now I don't want to. <laughs> you wanted to do five minutes ago. That's before you told me I had to. Now that you tell me I have to, I don't want to. It's simple. We all know that. Nobody wants to have to do something. I don't like the pressure. If you don't believe me, just take a look when it comes, you know, uh, to a fast day. Right? If you've ever fasted on a fast day. There are people who have, who never eat breakfast. They never eat breakfast. They never have, you know. They don't, they're just not breakfast people. You know, their mothers have shed bitter tears that they won't eat breakfast, you know. They don't have a cup of coffee, nothing. They don't have a Danish, nothing. They don't eat any breakfast, right? They very often will, will, will eat a late lunch, you know, if they're busy, you know. There are people like this. Until it's a fast day. A fast day, 9 o'clock in the morning, they're pacing up and down. I'm never going to make it. <laughs> Headache, I better lie down. I think I'm going to pass out. I feel so weak. Why? Why didn't you eat anything today? You never eat anything. But I always could. And once you tell me I can't, I'm starving to death. I'm starving. You understand? Because I know I can't. Once you tell me I can't, I want to. It's like that's it's normal. It's normal. So therefore, there's a psychological barrier when you tell me I can't or I have to, then I don't want to. Right? Okay. Now you understand the reform position. If I call them mitzvos, if I say that they're commandments, so then there's a psychological block to it. So let me remove that problem, and I'll call them suggestions. This is an idea that God has given you that's going to be good for you and positive, etc., etc., etc. If you want to, do it. If you don't, don't. Thereby removing the psychological block. Makes sense. And nonetheless... You know, the uh, old-time Jews are still calling them mitzvahs, commandments, like we always did. We have not, you know, taken advantage of this clearly, you know, intelligent move. Why is that? Why do... Let me take it from a, uh, another point of view, because that's, that's the way I always look at it. I'm not interested in giving an explanation. I'm giving an explanation that makes sense to me in my life, because if it doesn't make sense to me in my life, I, you're not doing anything for me. I, I gave this to a group of, um, of young people from Los Angeles came to Israel for a Samaya. It was an, un, you know, the, uh, what kind of a group was it? Uh, there were people who were actors and directors and producers. There was the head cheerleaders of the Lakers. You know, an, an average Jewish group. You know, cross-section, <laughs> you know. And, um, and I asked this question, and a person raised their hand and said, well, since it's harder for you to do, if you do it, you get more reward. I said, oh, you mean you thought that Judaism was too easy? That was the problem, you know? It's too easy, let's throw in a little psychological difficulty, so then it'll be much simpler to do, right? I said, I think it's hard enough, I'm not looking to make it any harder, right? And I said, let me ask you another question. Does that motivate you to want to now keep a mitzvah? Do you want to follow any of the commandments now? The person says, uh, no. I said, so what's the question? You know, to my mind, the fact that it's a commandment has to be something positive. There's a reason that God made them commandments. He's just as good at understanding people as we are, and he should have been able to make it in a way that it wouldn't be so terrible. Why are they psychological? Yeah, why do we call them commandments? And I want to give uh, a different read on the topic of commandments and what, how it fits in with everything we're talking about. Because to my mind, there's an advantage to it. And if there wasn't an advantage, it wouldn't be there. Right? Okay. So, um, 
we said, and this is what we discussed, you know, like I mentioned, those who were in Israel the last time, and I gave a little summation of it. The whole purpose of Judaism is to be able to get close to God. To be able to get this tremendous spiritual pleasure of being close to God. I assume that everyone in this room by this point is familiar with the fact that if you want to have a relationship with somebody, any kind of relationship with somebody, it comes with I have tos. Right? Now, it could be it could be a relatively low level relationship, but there'll be rules that define that relationship, right? I I grew up in New York, you know, uh, back in the seventies. Not not the New York of today, you know, in the seventies, you know. You know, if you got onto a subway and you sat down to next to somebody, right? That's a very low level relationship, but there was still there were rules. Don't kill me. <laughs> if you kill me, then you have broken the nature of the You wanna rob me? That's fine. You, know what I mean? you wanna you wanna not have showered for three months, you wanna spread your legs on falling off, that's all all that's acceptable. Once you kill me, that's it's not a good relationship. You know what I mean? But we understand this, right? A neighbor. Neighbors aren't necessarily friends, but you know, if you want to have a good neighbor, not the person's your friend, a good neighbor. Don't park in front of my driveway. Don't let your kids walk around in my flowers. You know, pass by. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bob. That's it. If you don't, if you don't observe certain minimal things, then we're not going to have a good neighborly relationship. That doesn't mean we'll be friends. But it won't be a neighborly relationship. Yeah? Now, let's say it's a friend. You're a friend, okay? So uh, I usually give this example to college students, right? You're driving late at night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and your car breaks down. You don't have a cell phone. Your parents are out of town. So you start walking, and as soon as you start walking, of course, it starts raining. And it's cold, and it's raining, and you walk for a mile till you find a payphone, and you call your best friend. And the phone is ringing. It's now 3.30 in the morning. And the phone is ringing and ringing and ringing. And half asleep, your best friend answers the phone. And you say, hi, it's me. And he says, what are you calling me in the middle of the night? You know, i got to get up in the morning. He says, listen, I broke down in the middle of nowhere. I don't have a cell phone. You know, this is my last quarter. I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere. It's raining. Could you come and pick me up? This is your best friend. Your friend thinks, oh, my gosh, 3.30 in the morning. You know, middle of the night. It's cold. It's raining. No. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> now, when you see this person the next day, what will be the first thing you'll say? Uh, let's forget the first thing you'll say. <laughs> but after you get past the initial, you know, comments and observations about him and his family and his parentage, you know, after, after you get through the first initial observation, what's the next thing you're going to say? You're not my friend. What do you mean I'm not your friend? You're not my friend. You weren't there for me. You weren't there for me. You didn't come out there to help me. He says, whoa, what is, what are you, my grandmother? I got to come out in the middle of the night. Where is it ripped? I got to come out in the middle of the night. It was cold. It was raining. I was tired. That doesn't mean I'm not your friend. We can go out. We can watch a movie, have a few drinks, have a nice time. Now, if we decide to keep this relationship, we might decide not to, but if we do, we will seriously downgrade it in our mind. This person is not really a friend, because I can't really depend on them. This person is an acquaintance, perhaps. This is somebody that I can have a, you know, a casual relationship with, but this person is not going to be my friend in the sense that I know I can count on them, right? Friends don't let friends drive drunk, right? Friends are there for each other, you know? If you're not there for me, then you're not really my friend. That means that I understand if we have a relationship, not that if you feel like it, you're there for me. I'm sure 
all of us have been in relationships at some point where after we've had a lovely evening, we say, when will I see you again? And the person says, whenever, we'll see. We're two ships that pass the night. <laughs> Once they sing Manilow, you know, it's really all over. That's the dead of the dance, you know? And that's it. You scratch that name off, you know, and, you know, there's no commitment here. Right? Okay. Now, you get, um, you get married. Right? Beautiful thing. Get married. And you're walking with your spouse, and uh, you see this friend from college you haven't seen in three years. You know, you're so excited to see them. You know, um, if you're a girl, you might do the ritual primal scream thing. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a guy, you might be like, hey. to see him, I haven't seen you in so long, and we talk, and we have a wonderful time, that's great, you know? The next day, your spouse walks out the door, comes back three years later. (laughs) Your reaction will be dramatically different. It might involve a weapon. And before anything serious happens, you say to the person, wait a second, I don't understand. Here, you had this good friend from college, you haven't seen them in three years, and you were so excited to see them. I figure you like me more, you don't see me in three years, you'd be even happier. (laughs) (laughs) To which we say, it's a different level relationship. Of course, I don't care if I don't see this guy for another three years. You understand? But you're my wife or my husband. That means it's a higher level of relationship. Therefore, there are more I have to's in that relationship. Now, I learned this the hard way. Right? I got engaged this February. It will be 26 years ago. I got engaged to a wonderful woman who, thank God, I'm still married to. And, um, and, uh, I, I think so. I haven't seen her in a while. <laughs> I left her in Israel. Anyway, we'll see. I'll call tomorrow. But anyway, you know, and, uh, and I remember we got engaged. It was a whirlwind romance, you know. And at the time, I was running a youth organization in Long Island. I know this is hard to believe, but at one point, there was not this proliferation of cell phones that there are now. Right? The only one who had one was Dick Tracy. Nobody else <laughs> you know, and that was it. You know, you had only a payphone and quarters, or you had to get to a landline, you know, well everything was a landline, no one had a cell phone, you know. And uh, I was running a youth organization, which was involved a lot of night work, because that's when the kids were up, you know? And you're I'm running here, I'm going there, and I had one crazy night, about a week after we were engaged and I had to go to this, uh, I went to a meeting, and I spoke to this other kid, and I went here, and I picked up somebody in the office, and it was a crazy thing. I got home about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I throw myself on the bed, I'm exhausted, and the phone rings. Now, in youth work, at 3 o'clock in the morning, if the phone's ringing, it's either someone who wants to kill themselves, or a druggie, or both, you know, and I said, I'm too tired now, you know, I hope they'll be okay, I just, I can't answer the phone. Ten minutes later, it rings again. Ten minutes later, it rings again. So I'm really getting nervous. So finally, I pick up the phone, and it's Sammy, my 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 uh, fiance. I said, Sammy, what are, what are you doing up so late? And she says, Where were you? <laughs> so where was I? My mom doesn't ask where was I. You know what I mean? Even my parents don't do that anymore. I was at a 
busy. I had a place to go. I had this. I take care of that. I take care of this. You know. She says, but don't you understand that you're engaged? Don't you understand you're in a relationship? Don't you understand somebody's worrying about you? Don't you understand you have obligations? No, I said it never occurred to me. Because <laughs> I'm a guy. Okay? Girls go through a terrible angst before they get engaged. I'm going to end up changing my name. I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to be married to this person. What's going to be? What does it mean? Where am I going to go? How's it going to happen? And guys are like, you cook? Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll live here. You know what I'm saying? Understand the full implications of it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, guys don't quite get that. You know, and so therefore, every girl when she gets married goes through this process of breaking in the guy. You know what I mean? So I heard the Jackie Mason do a routine 15 years ago, obviously before cell phones. He said, "You can tell the difference between a Jew and a Gentile in a second. A Gentile walks down the street; it's no problem. A Jew walks down the street saying, is there a phone? Anyone see?'" <laughs> You know, I got a call, I got a call. Hello, yeah, 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 I'm calling, I'm calling. I did, the light's about to turn green, but then I'll call you from the other side of the street. <laughs> I cross the street, I'm going in to have a bowl of soup. I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling. He said, whenever you call, it's too late. <laughs> it. You know, there's a sense of, there's a sense of obligation. Don't just go off and do whatever you want. There's an obligation. Right? Now let's say, let's say it wasn't an obligation. Right? Let's say you call, uh, a guy calls up his wife and says, sweetheart, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, things are really crazy at the office, I don't think I'll be home for supper. That's okay. Um, no, I don't want you to have to wait supper. Well, I wasn't gonna. Oh. Well, well I'm gonna be working really late, don't wait up. I wasn't going to. Oh. I might not even be there in the morning, I might work straight through the night. It's okay. Come home, don't come home, whatever you want. <laughs> I'm always happy to see you, and if I don't see you, it's also okay, whatever you want. Few <laughs> and far between will be the guys who say to themselves, what a great wife I have. <laughs> He's so understanding. He'll say she's having an affair, she doesn't love me anymore, I don't know what. She doesn't care. Why doesn't she care that I'm not coming home? Why the second I fall? You want, to, you want someone to hassle you? Yeah. yeah. Because if I'm not obligated, it just means they don't care. It just means I don't care. I should want someone who feels an obligation. You know? A guy says to me, this is absolutely amazing. A guy says to me, you know, my wife is so unreasonable. You know? He says, I get up early in the morning. I take, you know, I fight traffic, get into Manhattan. I work a high-pressure job. I work very late. I come back. You know, all I want to do is take a shower, have something to eat, and go to sleep. And my wife, she thinks she cares. My wife wants to talk to me. I said, a chutzpah. You know? I said, talk to you? Yeah, what do I do? How do I handle this? You know? I said, you stick to your guns. And I'll bet you eventually she won't want to talk to you either. And, he, and he's listening, and he knows there's something wrong with this, but he can't quite figure out why. I have to tell you, on those rare occasions that I have to do marriage counseling, and I 
always stress I have no qualifications you know whatsoever <laughs> and I shy people away from it I said I don't know what I'm doing I didn't go to school for this I don't know anything about it you know mm-hmm. and they say listen you know uh, we've been to three marriage counselors two rabbis and a Kabbalist you know what I mean <laughs> and we're on our way to the divorce court you know you can't make it any worse you know what I mean I said okay in that case I'll give it a shot you know? <laughs> and I find that most marriages do not die because of serious problems they die because of neglect. You know, if I don't invest enough time in a relationship, listen, you know, the idea of taking two people and sticking them together forever is an amazing concept. And it's only going to happen if people really work at this relationship. And if you don't work at it, you know, relationships are like flowers. They need sunshine and water or they wither. And I've seen so many marriages that just withered. Yeah? You don't send me flowers. You hardly talk to me anymore when you come to the door at the end of the day. I am locked in 1989. But it doesn't make a difference now because I have satellite radio and I can always listen to 1989. I never have to face reality. It's absolutely I moved to Israel in 1988 and that's it. I'm just, time walked for me. You know what I mean? That's it. You know? When you come back, I was, I was speaking some university group. I thought it was happening, and, and it was so clear that I, I already happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I was saying, you know, some guys laughing. He said, Yo, Rabbi, you are still 1980s. You know? I, like, uh, I thought that's a good thing. <laughs> anyway, you know, the Reagan years. Everybody's running. Every Republican pretends he's Reagan again. You know Because that was a good time. But anyway, you know, um, you know, there's this, there's this sense of. I don't care. I don't care. I should feel an obligation. I should feel a sense of obligation. But very often, when I, you know, I'm on leave of absence right now from Orsamech, when I'm working in Orsamech, you know, um, my day very often starts at 6.30 in the morning, and I come home about 11 o'clock at night. And when I come home, I don't want to take a shower and have supper. I want to fall into my bed, whimper for 15 seconds, and go to sleep. That's it. That's all I have the strength for. My wife, of course, who's been home with our various dysfunctional children. (laughs) Because I travel the world talking about how to raise children, because it's a lot easier than staying home and actually doing it. (laughs) I let my wife do that, and then I tell stories. I always say... You know, because I know that it's so easy to let this marriage die, just like every marriage. And you work at it, and you have to push yourself and find the time. Because otherwise, if, if if you reach the point where you say, you know, I don't talk to my wife, she doesn't talk to me, you know, we don't have any time for each other, that, that, that's a terrible thing. And yet, I hear people say, I have a great relationship with God. I don't talk to him, he doesn't talk to me. <laughs> I said, if that's the idea of a great relationship, I feel bad for your spouse. That's a great relationship, that's a dysfunctional relationship. Therefore, God says, I created the world for one reason, for you to get the greatest pleasure, which is the spiritual pleasure that comes from having a relationship, being close to God. If God said that there are, obli- that there are, that there are suggestions, talk to me, don't talk to me. Keep Shabbos, don't keep Shabbos. You know, I learn Torah, don't learn Torah. I don't really care what you do. And what he's saying is, I don't care about this relationship. I'm not committed to it. But instead, what God says is, these are commandments, just like in a marriage. I mean, I'll take a step further. 
because uh, next week we're going to read the story of the giving of the Torah. There are hundreds of references in rabbinic literature comparing the giving of the Torah to a wedding, to a marriage. We married God at Mount Sinai. He lifted the mountain up over our head like a chuppah. You know? And the, and the, and the, the, the tablets that Moshe brought down was supposed to be Aksuba, the marriage document. Right? And, and on and on and on. So many different references to the point that idol worship is always compared to adultery. Understand? It's, it's a connection to adultery. Because there's supposed to be a monogamous relationship between us and God. We're supposed to feel that we're in this for real. So if God gives us suggestions, it just means I don't really care what you do. It's interesting that there are the seven Noahide laws, which is commandments that Jews and believe that non-Jews have to keep. It's, it's a fascinating idea. You know, uh, Christianity believes if you're not a practicing Christian, then you're going to go to hell forever. And Islam believes if you're not a practicing Islam, uh, Muslim, you're going to go to hell forever. And, when, uh, and therefore, because it's so important that they don't want you to go to hell, so they will try to influence you to become either a Christian or a Muslim through any means available, torture if necessary. Because they're worried about your soul and they want to save you. Mm-hmm. But when a non-Jew comes to a rabbi and says, I want to become a rabbi, we say, why? What do I do that for? You know? He says, well, I want to go to heaven. He says, no problem. Do the seven, go to heaven. You know what I mean? Keep the seven high laws and you'll go to heaven. Right? But the seven Noahide laws are called the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach. Those are also commandments. Because God wants to have a relationship with the non-Jews. Okay, it's a lower level relationship. They say, wait a second, wait a second. If I keep the seven Noahide laws, will I have the same reward in heaven that you do? Then I say, I hope not. Gosh, I'm doing 613, you're doing seven, and we should get the same? <laughs> Does that sound fair to you? <laughs> he says, that's not fair. I said, what is it? You want to become a Jew? You can become a Jew. You want to, you want to keep all the commandments? Get into that? It's not easy. You know? I was on a plane. This nice Christian woman, she says to me, you're a Jew, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, we're giving away, you know? The Pope has a red one, you know? I said, that's right, I'm a Jew. She goes, you know, the Jews are the chosen people. I, I said, yes, that's correct, you know? Says, God gave the Jews the Bible on Mount Sinai. I said, yes, that's correct. She says, how come so few Jews believe that? I said, because you can believe that and still go to uh, Cheeseburger Paradise. You know what I mean? You can still have a pork, uh, pork town. You know what I mean? You can uh, do whatever you want on Saturday. If we believe it, then that means we got 613 commandments that come with it. You understand? So for to, you want to keep the seven Noahide laws, it's easier from that point of view. But it's a lower level relationship. It's different between being a friend and being a spouse. You know? If, you're, if you have a marriage, then there are more commandments than there are for a friend. It's much more of a total system. So, uh, so therefore, God wants this relationship with us, not if you feel like it. I don't talk to my wife if I feel like it. I talk to my wife every day. You know, and even if I don't feel like it, even if I'm tired, and uh, there are even times I'll turn away from my email to give my wife my entire attention. You can imagine such a thing. <laughs> That's a guy joke. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the point is that uh, you know if you want if you want to have a relationship you have to feel obligated not if I feel like it 
Not if I feel like it, right? Okay. So therefore, there are mitzvahs. And I, and I, I want to develop one last aspect of mitzvahs because I think it's also very important to understand. This is one of the problems, right? Um, the problem is that we tend to look at mitzvahs piecemeal, right? Now you eat a matzah. Now you shake a lulu. Now you kiss the mezuzah. Now you say a prayer, right? You do this, you do that, push the button, pull the lever, you know, and you do your little mitzvah things. Right? And a person may say about any particular mitzvah, wait, I don't understand this. Now that's always a problem. If people don't understand what they're doing, then it's going to be a problem. You know? You have uh, people who say, you know, well, I pray, Rabbi, I don't get anything out of it. I pray, I don't get anything out of it. Right? So I say, well, that's because, you know, you, you don't know what you're saying. And they say, it's not true. I haven't. Art school sitter. <laughs> so I said, that's great, because it used to be that you didn't know what you were saying in Hebrew. Now you don't know what you're saying in English. <laughs> Allow me to pull out one small example. This is only one example that is one of my favorites, where we may say on Shabbos morning, I have no idea what that means. So I turn to the English and it says, to thank, Lord, praise, glorify, exalt, adore, bless, raise high, and sing praises. Much more meaningful. <laughs> Sounds like someone opened up a thesaurus and copied out a list of words. Because someone opened up a thesaurus and copied out a list of words. So I don't know what I'm saying. Prayer is more than merely translation. I have to make it meaningful to myself. I have to work on it. I have an entire class on prayer. In any event, <laughs> not going to do that. But you thought this was a shear. This is an infomercial. <laughs> but um, when uh, when you take a look at prayer, you know, so I don't want to do it. Same with anything else. With Shabbos, people people go to keep Shabbos, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand how I keep the mitzvahs, and that's supposed to get me on Shabbos. The Torah says that every seventh day there's a wave of holiness that fills the world. God bless the seventh day and made it holy. There's holiness that surrounds us, but we don't feel it. We don't know how to get it. The purpose of the mitzvahs teaches us how to tap into this energy. Teaches us how to enjoy all these different things. You know? The, uh, every law is, is there to be able to connect us. But obviously it's taking all the laws together that bring it together. Right? Um, I, I'm not going to go into individual mitzvahs now. I'm not sure what this means, but I'll just show you the, 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 the total approach. Right? Um, I have eight daughters. Thank you. <laughs> I have eight, for years I had eight daughters and one son. It was uh, it was always you know it, it was always interested people about that about this one boy, and he was sort of a girly man. Like, uh, <laughs> so it was pretty easy, you know. Well, I was like eight boys and one. Day. And then God, in His infinite sense of humor, gave us these two little boys. Now later in life, thing one and thing two. <laughs> And uh, and someone asked me, why do you think God gave me these little these two little boys? You know, when you were much older, I said, because now I haven't got the strength to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> if I was younger, these kids would not make it there by mistake. You know, girls. I used to think girls, you know, okay, so they sit there, they cut up things, they annoy each other, they cry, you know, little temper tantrums every now and then. But that's nothing like boys. Boys are from another planet. 
You know, they're jumping off the furniture, they're ripping things apart, they're hitting each other, they're rolling around, crying, smashing. My son, he's five years old, he's got a bump on his head, it won't go away, he's throwing it so many times. You know, it's just absolutely amazing, you know, it's, just, it's a whole different world, you know. But now I'm so, I'm too tired to fight with him, I'm like, wait, stop, come back. You know? Put down the knife. I know, I know you want to kill me. Put down the knife, I have a SWAT team on its way. We have a hostage situation here. You know, but, uh, you know, but one of the joys of having girls, now I'm one of six boys, there was no girls in my family because God has a sense of humor. But, um, so I ended up in this house full of girls. One thing that we as boys never really did is we never took ballet lessons. We could all discuss why that might be, but uh, never asked. So yeah, my girls all want to take ballet lessons, right? Now, these things are expensive, you know? They, they, this is, they start when they're young, they've been hanging for years, but it's expensive. So I'm watching to note their progress, to see what I'm paying money for. I can see if this is a worthwhile investment. I went to a Brishnikov pirouette 30 times without stopping, so I'm looking for something impressive over here. And they come back and I said, what did you learn today? And they said, this. Now, for those of you who are at a distance, I just put my feet at right angles. I think this is called third position, if I'm not mistaken. And I paid money for that. I said, I could have shown you how to do that. Because again, you know what I mean? And my wife says, be patient, be patient. Soon they learn how to put their hand over their head. <laughs> Eventually they could bend their knees. <laughs> and I said to my wife, I'm not impressed. And my wife said to me, you're right, that's not dance. Those are the steps you need to learn how to dance. You have to master all those, but nobody's going to pay money to watch you go like this, right? There's, there's got to be more to it than that, but you have to first learn all of the moves, or you'll never be able to dance, yeah? Um, my kids have after-school activities in Israel. That's because the school day finishes at 1 o'clock. Very often the kids come home before they leave. And, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. I don't know what they do, how they handle this, you know. But uh, so they have lots of have to go up there. We sign up for all of them, you know. But I know they're all passing fads. They're not going to really stick to any of this stuff. So I try not to invest too much money in it. So at one point they decided they were going to learn how to play the organ, you know. And, uh, you know, I have to buy an organ. Then in all case, they're going to schlep back and forth to school, you know. Guys, I'm not spending money on this. I got the cheapest one there was. And uh, after a few weeks, they complained to my wife. They know it's a waste of time to talk to me. They complained to my wife that some of the keys have broken off. <laughs> so my wife said, listen, some of the keys have broken off. I said, so what? There's still plenty of good ones. <laughs> yeah, you know. My wife is trying to explain to me that you need all of those keys if you want to be able to play music, right? Maybe I'll give one other example. This is based on a documentary from about 25 years ago. I don't know how many of you saw it. It was called The Karate Kid. Yeah. Uh, I gave a lot of insight into the martial arts film. Anyway, I knew a guy I was friendly with who was a New York City police officer, an Orthodox Jew, a black belt in karate, average sort of a fan. And uh, I said, was there anything to that movie? He says, what do you mean? I said, you know, this, you know, he says, no, that's nothing. But there was one part that was really true, right? If you didn't see the film. He's trying to teach his kid karate, so he says to him, paint the fence. Right? You paint the fence, and then with the other hand, paint the other side. Paint the fence, right? Comes in the next day, there's all this uh, deck, sand the deck. You have to sand the deck. 
The next day it comes in, lots of cars. Wax on, wax on. <laughs> Practicing all these moves. And at the end of these three days, he comes over to the guy and says, you're not teaching me karate, you're just making me a slave. He says, show me wax on. He says, what? Show me paint the fence. He says, what? And he starts attacking him, and instinctively, he's got all these moves that he's been practicing. He said, that is correct. Most people think karate is, you know, you put on your pajamas and you go, yeah! <laughs> Good way to get yourself killed. says it's practicing moves over and over again until you master them. And when you master all the moves, you work together. And he says to me, it's a lot like mitzvahs. A person thinks that you're going to suddenly open up a sitter and feel this sense of awe. The clouds will part, a ray of light will shine on you, the angels will sing, ah! and you'll be overcome with a tremendous sense of emotion as you say, Ashrayam. Oh, yeah, It's not going to happen. I'm legend right now. It's not going to happen. First, you have to learn what the prayers are. Then, you have to understand them. Then, you have to concentrate. You know, those of you who have ever gone to a prayer service, you know that the central part of the Jewish prayer service is the Shemona Esrei, the silent Amida. We always sit there praying and sitting in the whole room goes silent. And you say to yourself, I've got so much stuff to take care of today. Why? Because this is the first quiet time you've had in your whole day. The phone's not ringing, nothing's going on, the radio's not playing, I can finally stop and think. We're not used to that. You understand? But you have to train yourself to concentrate, to focus on it. If you do, then slowly you learn how to use it, and now prayer becomes a meaningful experience. And the same thing is true with Shabbos, and the same thing is true with Kashras, and the same thing is true with everything. And as we master each one, each one is a step in the ballet. Each one is a note in a symphony. All of these things tied together, every mitzvah is a step in this process. You know, and as you put them all together, suddenly you start to reach a level where you have a life that lifts you up out of this world into this relationship with God. Then you catch this infinite pleasure that this poor middle-aged Israeli businessman thought he has to go to India and sit in an ashram to do. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. If we only understood that this is what Judaism is all about. The mitzvahs is not the purpose. The mitzvahs are the means. If you don't understand that, you think they're an end to itself, then they won't get you anywhere. No more than in any other relationship, right? For example, in marriage there is a commandment, thou shalt not forget thy wife's birthday upon punishment of death. <laughs> and the husband comes home on his wife's birthday with a dozen long stem roses and says, look, sweetheart, I brought you roses. And she says, that's so nice. And how come? He says, well, it's your birthday. He says, oh, you remembered my birthday? And he said, I have to, right? <laughs> I remember I forgot it last year. I didn't hear the end of it for like weeks. Can I put him in, you know, you put him in water? Or you, you know what? I'll put it in water. I'll do the mitzvah mahadra and I'll do it complete and I'll put it up in water and it's all done. Can I go now? <laughs> A beautiful building moment. You know what I mean? Um, guys have probably learned this over the years and that is girls are not necessarily interested in practical gifts. A guy would be very happy if you buy him a drill. But a girl is not necessarily thrilled with a mixer. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And in every mall, 
I was just in Edmonton, Canada on Sunday speaking, the largest mall in the world. And every mall, there's at least one store dedicated to worthless stuff that girls like to get, like little glass figurines. <laughs> Most guys will not say to their friend, you know, hey, uh, Bob, I picked up a figurine. <laughs> Yeah, I also got you this scented candle. <laughs> oh, girls like scented candles. Why? Because it's not the gift, it's not the practicality, it's the expression of emotion. It's the fact that this shows a relationship, this shows that you really care. That's the more important thing. God doesn't need you to do anything. You know, he needs you to eat a matzah. He gets a charge out of hearing the crunch. <laughs> He's up in heaven. He says, with the angels, it's, oh, look over there. Crunch. <laughs> look, look. Wonk, 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 wonk. Crunch. I love this time of year. Hey, God. hey Gabriel, is what over there. Crunch. crunch. <laughs> I should have made this a more than once a year thing. I would love that crunch, you know. God, from God's point of view, he doesn't care if you eat a matzah or a ham sandwich. God doesn't need you to do anything. Understand? But the fact is that if we do it because we understand we're building the relationship, then of course there's a purpose to eating matzah, there's a purpose to all the mitzvahs. As I mentioned, each one of them is, is valuable in themselves. But when we bring them all together, then it builds a relationship and builds ourselves in a way that we can relate to God as infinite. That's in a short idea what, what the mitzvahs have to do. And therefore, when we sit down and we look at them, we, we don't look at them as obligations. We don't look at them as suggestions. We look at them as relationship-building tools. You know, I want to get this tremendous pleasure from having a close relationship with God. i got to build that relationship. And just like in a marriage, there's things i got to do. And just like in a friendship, there's things i got to do. And this relationship with God, there's things I have to do. Not just when I feel like it. But I have to feel a sense of obligation. And that's why they're mitzvahs. And when we do that, each one... Again, it's a struggle to understand them. As we understand them and we make them meaningful, slowly we're able to create ourselves a life where we live, as I mentioned at the last time when we were together, right, that lifts us above the clouds, brings us into a spiritual reality where a person can live a life that's so much greater than everything else around them. Thank you very much. Let's we'll take a few moments to answer questions. So, if anyone has questions, put their hand up. <clears throat> well, here we are again. <laughs> if there are any questions, then I'll be happy to answer them, or alternatively, offer a meaningless story, which is what they taught us to do in rabbi school. If you don't have an answer to those questions, <laughs> are there any questions? Yes. Your daughter's ballet advanced any further. They're doing great. In fact, it's always embarrassing because my, my, thank God they have tremendous grace. They obviously look after their father. And, uh, and my wife goes to these performances, you know, and uh, they come up to afterwards and say, wow, your daughter was, you know, was unbelievable. And my wife says, your daughter was also very good. And she says, not like your daughter, you know, your daughter was great. So they, they all do these dances and they choreograph and they do stuff and it's, it's really, uh, it's exceptional. They're very talented. And that's so nice, you know, when, when people develop their talents. They never developed the, you know, the piano thing. That, that, never, <laughs> that never took off. And the female thing, they never really developed. The dance, they're all so good at it. It's just absolutely amazing that they have that grace. So it's beautiful. They also sing beautifully.
So uh, a lot of talents. Very talented kids. Anything else you want to know about my kids? <laughs> yes. So is it a, a one-way relationship? You said God doesn't doesn't care if you eat ham or or matzah on, on this side. Oh, it's such a good question. It's such a good question. He says, um, is it a one-way relationship? You know, I remember seeing a bumper sticker years ago that said, God, what have you done for me lately? You know. So when people ask me, is it a one-way relationship? I tell them to do the following. You know, I. When I say the prayers three times a day, I come to Shmonesra, I come to the first paragraph, and I do exactly what I'm saying. You know, I'm, you know, uh, the the success that I have enjoyed, I think, has best been expressed by people who come to my regular Saturday night shir that I give in, in Jerusalem on Saturday night every other week. And they say to me, I love coming to your shir, Rabbi because you're so ordinary, and I feel like if you could do it, anyone could. <laughs> and I know exactly what they mean, you know. So I do the same thing that I say here. I give the same advice I give you. I work on myself. So I go through the prayers to find phrases that I'm underlining to understand, but to focus on. So I chose a phrase in the first paragraph of the Shmona Esrei where it says, "Gomel chasodim tovim which is translated as "He bestows loving kindness and is master of all." Meaningless phrase. So what I did is I went to make it meaningful to me. Gomel chasodim tovim. He bestows loving kindness like, and I try to think of something good in my life that I am enjoying. And um, at the beginning, it was a little stilted. Sometimes I go through series of things, you know, and I focus on, you know, if it's a hot day, it's, uh, you know, you're focusing on, you know, and, and thank God they came with that idea of air conditioning. You know what I mean? And uh, one time it was a cold day. I, I, you know, I looked at the closed windows and I thought, Gosh, glass! What a great idea! You know, and things like that. Sometimes it's, you know, about uh, about the human body. Sometimes about the world around us. But as time has gone on, I find that there's just so much good in my own life that goes on that I don't have. I often have to decide what to limit it to. If I want to limit it to one, sometimes I say two things because it's just so much good that I have in my life that I just ignore I just ignore it. You know, somebody once said to me, why does God do so many bad things to us? I said, he doesn't. He does so many good things. But we take credit for that. And when something bad happens, then we finally say, where was God? But all the good stuff we took for granted, you know? So I look at something good, say, and I think of something, and it all comes from God. And as I've done this, I've been doing it for about 12 years now, I can tell you it changed my life. And I know other people who've picked up this suggestion and they told me it changed their life too. Because you don't even realize how much good you have. You know? And, and the more you start to see what God does for you in your life and how much stuff, then you realize it's definitely a two-way relationship. He's doing stuff for us all the time. Most of the time we take it for granted. Very often children do that too. You know? And, uh, you know... Oh, gosh, you know, I, I haven't had that with my kids, you know. With those, you know, a teenager will say, you've never done anything for me in my whole life, you know. And I think to myself, this kid had colic, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I almost put them up for adoption, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I had a kid with colic, you know. And, you know, and all this stuff we do, but they say, you never did anything for me, you know. And, uh, and it's so sad. And sometimes we do that with spouses too, you know, where we, where we take them for granted, you know what I mean? You know, and when you stop to think of all the stuff that they do, and I, I do that with God, all the good stuff He does for me, so then I realize it's a two-way relationship. God does stuff for us, and He wants us to do stuff for Him because that builds the relationship. Not because He needs it, but because it builds the relationship. So 
So that's uh, so that's the way uh, you know. It, it definitely is a two. Just curious where your first son fell with the girl. Uh, it's girl, girl, boy, girl, 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 and then two little boys. Oh. Twins? He's number three. No, no, I did a single birth. No trick. It's no trick with the multiple births. <laughs> I have a friend of mine, Hanoch Tella. I don't know if he's ever been out of here, Rabbi Hanoch Tella. He's really exceptional. Talented fellow. He's got 18 kids. Oh. That's right. No matter what it is, I'm always, I'm always impressed. His wife looks like she's 20. You know, she looks like she's 20. She's totally thin. You know, and you know, she's, she hasn't aged at all. You know, I mean, I, I think she just died to stay that way. I don't know what it is. But gee, he had triplets and, and like three sets of twins. You know, and I said to him, Ah, anyone could do it with multiple births. I did it the hard way, one at a time. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah. Yes? Does it make any difference if you pray in English or Hebrew? What was that? Does it make a difference if you pray in English or Hebrew? It, it only makes a difference in the sense that the Hebrew has a certain power in the, in the words and the poetry and the meaning that doesn't translate well. That's why I gave an example. You know, you open up uh, to that prayer and it just sounds like a string of synonyms. Whereas in Hebrew, I've given a number of shiurim on the difference between lahodos and lahalos. And I sat through many hours of shiurim between the difference of l'shabayach and l'fa'er. Which in English will all be words of praise that sound the same. That's the problem, that when you pray in English, like every language has a gift of being able to express something that you can't in any other language. They say French is a wonderful language for romance. And they say that, you know... Um, uh, German is supposed to be a good language for philosophy and English is supposed to be a good language for commerce Italian is clearly the best language to express pasta <laughs> there is no way to express pasta go to the Ranzoni Island you know, 80 words from noodles you know what I mean you know fusilli, linguini, spaghetti, macaroni macari, margarita, lasagna every time they give that noodle another kvetch they make another word for it you know so uh, Hebrew has a special gift for expressing relation with God. So in the interim, uh, you know, it, of course, you know, well, you use the Hebrew. It's better. It's 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 certainly acceptable, but it but it loses the magic, and that's that's one of the problems with it. You know, the Hebrew has a um, has a has a power to it that uh, that in the words that uh, you know that, that's worthwhile. But in the in the interim, it's always better. In English, they're nothing, you know. The question comes in, is it better in Hebrew and I don't understand it, or English and I do understand it? That's, that, that, I, can, I can argue both sides. So, uh, you know. Yeah. I'm going to give you one more. Uh, years ago, I heard an interview with Terry Gross interviewing Will Durant, who wrote, I think that's the name, who wrote The Great Religions of the World, The right. History of the Great Religions. And she said to him, so... The purpose of you writing this is I can pick and choose here and there, and the ideas from here and there. And he said, let me quote the Buddha on that. He said, when looking for water, it's better to drill one 50-foot well than 51-foot wells. Mm. Interesting. Right. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay, so if God it says that he has to crunch on matzah you know, for his happiness, Let's say that, and, and, and all these commandments, all these myths 
quote, are to help us have a close relationship with God. Let's say that you are able to find some spiritual connection and happiness and feel very close with God through meditating, smelling incense, or, you know, plucking feathers from chickens. Okay? And you say that his commandments are for us, not for him. And these are hard. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you're right. You're right. You see, the problem is that, and I'm not, I was not going to get into this this evening, but it comes down to whether or not um, there's, whether or not God actually told us how to have a relationship with Him. See, in Judaism, we believe God actually revealed Himself on Mount Sinai and said, "This is what I want." So a husband comes home and says to his wife, "You know, I love you so much." I decided to buy you a, you know, um, a power drill. And his wife said, but I told you I really wanted this new perfume. So he says, don't tell me how to get close to you. I'll tell you how I'll get close to you. So that becomes a very one-sided relationship. So if God says, listen, these are the ways that we will get close, and there's a lot of meaning to it, which I, I said we didn't go into, you know, there's a lot of meaning to it, and I say, well, tough luck, God, I'd rather get close to you by doing what I want. So that's going to be a very selfish relationship. It's not, you know, but by trying to get close to somebody, it's, it's the, the, the trick is by understanding what they want, right? Yeah, seek first to understand before being understood, to quote the seven habits of highly effective people, right? You know, so that if I want to have a relationship, the, the, the key is to figure out what that person wants rather than what I want to do. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with a spiritual relationship, you know, is that I never know whether what I'm feeling is real or not. What do I mean? Unless I'm a spiritual expert, you know. So, um, uh, so this fellow was wearing his tefillin, right? I will not say phylacteries. He was wearing his tefillin, which he had bought in Israel many years ago. Every morning he put it on. And it always made him feel very spiritual and very special because the Mitzvah of Thrillin has this ability to connect us to God, etc. And uh, years later, someone said to him, you know, did you ever check it? You have to check them. You know, uh, twice every seven years. And other. So I didn't know that. Yeah, you had to bring them to be checked. So he brings them to be checked. And there's no harshios inside. There's no scroll. It's just a Xerox piece of paper. He said, well, I'm good. And he says, here every morning I put them on and I convinced myself I was feeling something and I wasn't doing anything. You know? And I know people in relationships like that too. Well, they convince themselves that they have a relationship, but they know that. Clint Eastwood, I remember seeing an interview with him in the, in the New York Times. And I said, Clint, what's your idea of a perfect evening? He says, well, a romantic dinner, soft light, beautiful music, fine wine. He says, Clint, is there a girl there? He says, sometimes. <laughs> but he could basically have a romantic dinner all by himself. <laughs> and that's how some people have a relationship with God, all by themselves. You know? But if you want to have another person there, then we've got to tune into them in, in the real way. So that's the Jewish approach. Yes, sir? You said that um, when the Torah was given, it was compared to marriage, and you also compared it to modern things. At the time, you know, like, man could have several wives. Could you elaborate? He could, but he was always viewed as being stupid. 
There was, an, there was an option, and it says right away, if you take a look at where the mitzvah says you're allowed to have more than one wife, it's immediately followed by the mitzvah of... Um, of the, uh, here's how the law of, is introduced. If a man has one, two wives, one whom he loves and one who he hates, and it says, the, the medrash says, that's what's going to happen. Because there's no good way to be married to two women at the same time, you know? And the next law that follows is the law of the... Um, of the evil rebellious son and they said because that's what's going to come out of such a marriage so although the option always existed you know um, Abraham had two wives because Sarah made him and Yaakov had you know two wives because you know, he was tricked into it and the next two he got his wives made him but uh, it was never considered a good idea it was an option because you know if you have a situation where there's lots of women, you know, so, uh, you know, and very few men, as happened certain times in Jewish history, there's certain women who would rally for the option to be able to, you know, be a second wife than to remain unmarried, you know. You're familiar with the west side of Manhattan. But, um, <laughs> I got a lot more to say on that subject, but I won't. But anyway, so uh, that's an option, but it was never considered a good option. You know what I mean? And it wasn't something that was, uh, that was ever encouraged. So, although the option exists, now it is possible for men to have more than one wife, because since men, you know, basically tend to be much more external, they can externally relate to more than one person. Women are internal, they can't do that. For example, someone sent me an email once, the difference between men and women, and it says, um, a woman, two men can sit and watch a football game for two hours without either one of them saying a word, and neither one thinks that the other one must be angry at them. <laughs> right? Whereas women are sure that, you know, and there's always, you know, and I, all the time, I'll see my wife, you know, and she'll be like, you know, I said, what are you thinking about? No, nothing, nothing. No, no, what are you thinking about? It's not important. And then she, finally she'll tell me, and it's this whole string of associations. <laughs> Every husband who's been married knows sometimes you come home and you're in trouble, but you don't even know why. You know? <laughs> it's like this vague feeling, you know? <laughs> and we'll say, like, you know, uh, are you upset about anything? No. <laughs> oh. oh, good. <laughs> so because we tend to be more external, we have the possibility to be able to relate to But it's not advisable. never has been. So, as Mr. Wizard used to say, kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> anyway. Yes? Once I've heard from a rabbi that no matter what we do, good deeds or mitzvahs, we don't know still how we will be judged. It's unclear. Uh, and um, my question is, is it more important to do all 613 mitzvahs for Jew rather than do maybe uh, a lot of other mitzvahs like um, universal ones, helping poor or helping needy or helping uh, you know, unhealthy people, doing some other? So who is the judge? How do we know and who will be judged? Of course, we know who is the judge, but how do we know how and what deeds will be judged and how? So you're right. I don't know what it means. There's a general rule, it's in Turkey, it's the Fumsara Agra, which means according to the amount of effort that goes into it, so that's how much it's going to be. 
But we all know that if we marry somebody and that person likes to go out and help people but never talks to us, although we may admire him, we're not going to have much of a relationship with him. So therefore, the, all of the mitzvahs are designed to do the same thing, to create a relationship with God. Now, there are certain people who go out and do good deeds because they just want to go out and do nice things. It makes them feel good, whatever it is, gives them a good feeling, etc. But not because they try to get close to God. Right? In other words, in Judaism, we do nice things because we're emulating God. We want to be more like God and thus get closer to Him. Other people want to do nice stuff because, you know, just random acts of kindness, which is just a nice thing to do. It makes them feel good, etc. But, um, but, it's, but it's not building a relationship. And the ultimate pleasure that we're going to get is being able to have this relationship with God. So I'm not here to take away or to say, how will this be judged? Everyone has their own struggles. And this is certain things that come very easy to some people are agonizing struggles for other people. You know? And, um, you know, and it could be that for one person to give up <coughs> cheeseburger paradise is going to be harder for somebody else, you know, to sit and uh, study all day. You know? Look, let's, let's, let's call it spade to spade, right? When in less than, oh, about, about six months' time, when Yom Kippur comes around, maybe seven months' time, yeah? Mm-hmm. And Yom Kippur comes around, the people in this room have a tremendous advantage over me. Because you all chose to come on an evening and sit and listen to a Torah lecture because you were just interested in finding out more about it. I'm a professional Jew. I do this for a living. You understand? Know if I don't do this, I starve to death. You know what I mean? So I gotta do it. You know what I mean? You know. So, uh, so the fact that I might do a hundred things may not have been as valuable at the end of the year as everybody in this room who made that decision to come here tonight. You know. So therefore, when when, when I, you know anybody judges somebody else at their peril. So therefore, you know, what's the most important thing that I have to do? The next thing that I do. That's the most important thing. And and you just have to go step by step. You know? And, uh, and, and there are certain people who look at all the stuff that they're not doing, and that's extremely unhealthy. What you have to do is say, look at the next thing I did. Look at the next thing I did. And that's it. And whatever I'm doing at this point, that's what I'm doing, and that's what I'm going to work on. And, you know... I started going to the uh, gym. I know everyone can tell. <laughs> Sleep physique that I have. And anyway, I'm the only guy in the gym who doesn't get to do weights. You know? He puts me on the bicycle. He puts me on the treadmill. He puts me on the cross country. He puts me on these things. I never got to do any weights. How am I doing any weights? He says, well, I don't want to kill you. <laughs> I first have to build your stamina up to the point that I think you won't drop dead. You know what I mean? I'm working slow. Once I think you're a functional human being, then I can answer this You know what I mean? You know? But, uh, you know, that's why I, 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 when I came to Israel, you know, I volunteered for the Israeli army. They had such a good laugh over there. <laughs> they told me I had the profile of a terrorist victim. And I was like, <laughs> I hurt myself on the way out. You know what I mean? You know? So of course, you know, it's like, you know, we look at two different people, and to us, we think we know what's going on, and we don't know. We don't know what it took for this person to struggle to be able to to come. I mean, you know, this, this is a point that cannot be made strongly enough, and that is, you know, I mentioned this already. The, the fastest growing group within the Jewish people are the people who are dropping out. The courage it takes for a person today, and I have to tell you that, you know, I was doing the Rebbe this, you know what I mean? This evening, in my opinion, is a miracle. 
you know, so we didn't split the Red Sea. But the fact that there are so many Jews who have that interest and that concern to be able to come out on an evening and listen to it, that, granted, I happen to be one of the most fascinating people. That's not the <laughs> You didn't know that when you came, you know what I mean? You know, you see, it's a total lecture and a person decides to come out to be able to, to commit, you know, to, to take out that time from their life. There are few things in this world as valuable as that, in my opinion. And where you take this, you know, like I can say, you know, the Jewish people are represented by the ladder of Jacob that has its feet on the ground and its head in the sky. And uh, that's how you climb up to heaven, one rung at a time. And uh, that ladder goes on. And, uh, why? You know, what? Why? Why is the chosen people? Why are and not all the people that live in this, in this earth? Oh, easy. Because nobody else wanted it. That's an Israeli joke. It's for sure true. For sure true. You know, the reason Abraham became the chosen person was just by, you know, lack of interest. Everybody else was worshiping idols. So God's walking around with this tower. Anybody want it? Anybody? Hello? There's nobody to give it to. So Abraham says, hey, wait a second, God. I'm a monotheist. I believe this. And one God up there. He says, hey, Abraham, how you doing? Good to meet you. You know? He says, oh, you want to give me the tower? He says, I can't give it to one guy. I need the people. You know? So see how you do. And he slowly built the nation. You know? And he became people. He stood in Mount Sinai. And God says, do you want the tower or not? He offered us the choice. He wanted it or not. And we said, no, it's an Ishmael. We'll take it. And that's, and that's why we're here. And I'm a nation of priests, which means we're here to bring the word of God to mankind. That's the reason we're here. Gosh, I wish I could tell you that we were chosen because, you know, God wanted to give reward to someone and he couldn't figure out anyone to give it to. Everybody was happy to take reward. That wasn't the problem. The question is, who's going to take the world and make it what it's supposed to be? Abraham makes a covenant with God. God says, okay, I'm going to give you all these blessings. You ready? Ready. First thing, famine. Goes down to Egypt, kidnaps his wife. And then, gets his wife back, has a fight with Lot, his only remaining relative. Right? Lot gets captured, he has to go to war against the four world powers. Right? But he's got Eliezer with him, not a problem. Right? Defeats the four world powers, takes back Lot, then he's childless, has to take another wife. His two wives don't get along. You know what I mean? And all these kind of problems go on. And after 29 years of this, God says, So, how do you like my confidence? I got one last thing for you circumcision. I was saving that for that. <laughs> Listen, Abraham, what do you think I need the chosen people for? To sit around and get reward? I want the whole world to get reward. But take a look at this world. There's hunger, and there's crime, and there's family strife, and there's marital strife, and there's all kinds of problems. I want you to solve the world's problems. And if so, we sign it in the flesh. It's for generations. But that's the purpose of the Jewish people, is to, is to change the world. Change the world. Sometimes we're better at it, sometimes we're less. You understand? But, uh, but that's, that's what we're doing. What do you mean, change the world? That means that I mean, me as a Jew, I got a responsibility to the rest of the people in the world. Sure. Very. Sure. Two thousand years ago, right? Um, the Roman Empire. Yeah. What was considered entertainment? Murder. Watch two people, two gladiators, kill each other in the stadium. You know, um, what we call today Western morality didn't exist. You know, all, all that existed was power, me, going after, you know, my own carnal pledges, and that's it. And there was no idea of helping anybody. The Roman Empire didn't help anybody. That's not what they were about. It's about power. 
and, and getting it. Pax Romana means everybody does what I say, you know. And now there's a concept in the world called Western morality. It's just Judaism. But they pass it down through Christianity, they turn it into secular humanism, but it's all the stuff in the Torah that now says, you know, um, honor your parents and give charity and help people, all these wonderful nice things that came from the Torah. Right? Came through our franchise called Christianity. But, uh, you know, but these ideas are filtered down into the world. Our job is to, is to, um, yeah, I can take a hand. <laughs> our job is to set an example in the world of morality that changes the world. And that's what we have to do. Throughout history, we uh, had times we were better at it, times we were worse at it, you know? But the way we're going to light up the world is by showing people in the town of Rodman, Poland, you know, whenever there was an argument between the Christians and the Jews, the Jews always played their trump card. They said, show us a religion that ever produced a Chavetz Chaim. And they all knew the Chavetz Chaim. And we saw Mayor Kagan. The Christians used to ask him to walk across their fields because they thought it would bless it. They saw he was a holy man. They saw he was somebody who was great. You know, um, you'll find in the, um, in the time of uh, Rembrandt, you'll find many of the painters used to paint Jews. Uh, pictures of Jews, paintings, and they said the reason is because you saw nobility. You know, when Jews are living the way that we're supposed to, we set a standard for the world that everyone looks at and says, "Wow, there's something great there." You know, and uh, and that's a challenge to the world, and that's why some people don't like us and they want to kill us because they don't like our message. Uh, Adolf Hitler said, "The Jews have inflicted two wounds on mankind." circumcision on their body and conscience on their soul. These are Jewish inventions. The war between the war is between the Germans and the Jews. All else is facade and illusion. You know? It's interesting. I know somebody who was studying in Loyola, which is a Catholic college, and the priest sees that, you know, that he's a Jew in the class. And at one point he says, you know, I never understood why the Jews have a problem with the Holocaust. And I always said, well, he says, I as a Catholic have a problem with the Holocaust, but I, 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 I don't understand what you Jews do. Everyone agrees that the Nazis were evil incarnate, come into the world, and evil wants to destroy good. Right? So why didn't he want to destroy the Catholic Church? Why didn't he want to destroy priests and nuns? Why did he want to destroy the Jews? Well, if you guys really represent the good in the world, I understand why evil wants to destroy you. But why didn't he want to destroy me? So uh, we understand that we're there to bring a mission to the world, a message to the world. Right now we forgot what our message is. We got to first remind the Jews. You understand? So once we understand what we're doing, we create a, a power in the world. That's the messianic era. When the Jews will bring the teaching of God to the to the world. Please, God. All right. Thank you.